Mark chapter 6, and we'll be covering uh, verses 14 through 29, the death of John the Baptist. So Mark chapter 6, and I'll read the passage for us now. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we look into the death of one of the, the dear saints of, of the Bible, John the Baptist, I pray, Lord, that we would learn from him, that, we'd, that we would learn how to be faithful even in the midst of persecution. We pray that you would bless our time now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Give a man a fish, and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for life. One of the TV shows that Hannah and I have been recently watching, um, it's a reality show where the contestants, the premise is very simple. The contestants just need to survive alone. They're sent out into the wilderness. They have to live out on the land, there's a few supplies, but for the most part, all of their shelter, their food, their water needs to come from the land. And as you watch this show, it becomes very clear that each one of them are incredibly experienced survivalists. And they're also incredibly experienced fishermen. Um, it becomes clear when they start building their own fish traps off of uh, branches and twigs that they find on the ground. They build their own fishing poles. 
Some even tied their own nets with twine and, and string that they brought with them. One contestant, they built a pier so they could get out into deep waters. Another contestant, he had the same idea, but he built a boat so he could cast his net, he could cast his net out onto the water. But even though it was very clear that each one of these contestants, each one of these survivalists were taught how to fish, you could probably guess they didn't catch that many fish. <laughs> there were many days when they would put their traps out and they would experience challenges. Their lines would break, bears would eat their fish before they could get to them, um, the waves would crash and crush their, their fish traps, their nets would get tangled, one contestant, over the course of 70 days, he lost about 70 pounds because he couldn't catch a single fish. Give a man a fish, and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for life. Right? This is the introduction that our speaker last week, Theo, gave to us. Talking about the passage right before ours, starting in verse 7, when Jesus, right, he doesn't just want to teach his disciples in theory, right, how to minister to people, how to preach repentance, but he actually sends his 12 apostles out two by two into the land of Galilee. And they go out and they teach people. They, te they preach repentance. They heal people's diseases. They cast out demons. And by all accounts, they were incredibly successful. And reading that account, you may think that that's what we should come to expect, right, that if we're faithful to go out, to minister to people's needs. We're faithful to go out calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That with the Holy Spirit's help, of course, that we should expect that every time we do that, that we'll see fruit, right? And I'm, and I'm not saying that that can't happen or that won't happen, but does it always happen where you'll see people come to repentance when you preach the gospel to them? Not all the time. As I was studying our passage for tonight about the death of John the Baptist, I have to be honest in that I was a little bit confused because in the course of the book of Mark, Mark has been very focused on the, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus to the people, the ministry of Jesus to his own disciples. But right here in our passage, there's actually an abrupt change of pace where now the focus switches from Jesus and it switches to John the Baptist. And I have to ask myself, why did Mark do this? Well, after thinking about it for quite some time, I came to the con conclusion that Mark did this because he wants to be real with us. He wants to be real because John, like the apostles and like Jesus, he preached the gospel. He called people to repentance, and he was really good at it. But even then, for John, the response that he got in this passage was hostility. It was persecution, and it cost him his own head. And so as we go out and we read this passage, I think that Mark is trying to ground his, his readers and trying to ground us and really to be real with us and, and to say that, yes, we should go out and we should preach the gospel and we should expect great things that the Spirit can do. But at the same time, even if you're perfect in your gospel presentation, you live righteously, you're winsome in your speech, there are times when you'll be met with hostility and also indifference. If you haven't experienced this hostility before because of your faith, you will. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will 
be persecuted. It's a promise. If you're living godly, you're sharing the gospel, persecution will come. And so once again, Mark has put this story in about John the Baptist to ground us. And he does it, right, not to discourage us, but I think it's actually the opposite. He wants to prepare us. He wants to show us that these responses, this hostility, is something that we need to anticipate and be ready for if we want to be faithful. And so tonight, we're going to learn and we're going to see that Mark prepares us to be a faithful Christian witness through the example of John the Baptist and through two worldly responses to John's ministry. Once again, I know it's, a, it's quite, a, quite long, but Mark prepares us to be a faithful Christian witness through the example of John and through two worldly responses to John's ministry. So, first part of this message is that we want to follow the faithful example of John the Baptist. Follow the faithful example of John the Baptist. Once again, the context of our passage starting in verse 14 is that Jesus' name is becoming known in the region of Galilee. He sent out his disciples to preach repentance, and he also sent them out to heal. Uh, Looking back actually in verses 12 through 13, it says, so they, that's the apostles, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so Jesus, he delegated his authority to his disciples, and they went out to this region of Galilee, again, preaching a message of repentance, casting out demons, and healing. And so there was this explosion of divine power going out throughout the land of Galilee. And as you can imagine, word got out quickly. Word got out quickly that there is this new power in the land. And King Herod heard of it himself. Verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And so it's kind of interesting, right, that there's actually some, a lot of confusion about where this power was coming from. Who is this Jesus? One of the prevailing thoughts was that, hey, this is actually the second coming of Elijah, right? That great prophet from the Old Testament, the prophet who called down a drought on the whole land. He was the prophet who raised a widow's son. He was the prophet who also defeated the 450 false prophets of Baal. And some people said, this Jesus, he's the second coming of Elijah. For others, they said, no, 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 this Jesus, he's his own prophet, but he's like one of those powerful prophets of old. But there's a third prevailing theory about who Jesus was. And you guessed it, right? It is John the Baptist. And you might wonder why, right? What what in common does Jesus have with John the Baptist? Well, we learn here in verse 14, it says that that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. The reason why people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead was because both of them had incredibly powerful ministries. In fact, it was Jesus himself who said of John the Baptist, truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Matthew 11. 11. And so Jesus himself, right, 
he's talking to the crowd, and he says that, hey, look, John the Baptist, out of every single person who's born of woman, that's every single person, John the Baptist is the greatest. And so if you look at all of the different ministries and the great men who have lived in the past, right, of course, it's Jesus up at the very top, right? He's the greatest minister there ever was. But the second is John the Baptist. That's how powerful, how successful his ministry was. And so I do want to take some time to look back and review a little bit about who John the Baptist was. And so for that, we're going to turn back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And it's been about a year, actually, since we started our study in Mark. So I thought it would be worth a few minutes to go over about who was John the Baptist. And once again, right, the point that I'm trying to make here is that we are to follow the faithful example of John the Baptist. So Mark chapter 1. We recall here that his mission is stated in Mark chapter 1, actually in verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before uh, your face who will prepare your way. That's his mission. Very simply, John the Baptist's mission is to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And you better believe that he was successful and he did his job. In Mark, uh, skipping down a couple of verses to Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so in this passage, we see that John baptized actually out in the wilderness at the river Jordan, right? And that people all the way from Judea and Jerusalem were coming to him. The distance from Jerusalem to the Jordan River um, was a little less than 20 miles, um, that's a long way. Remember, they didn't have cars or trains or uh, there's no boat that can take them there. And so they had to walk in the beating sun of the Near East to see John. And yet they did it gladly. In fact, it says that all came to see John. And it was all in the geographic sense. All of Judea and Jerusalem. That means the people in the city, in the great city of Jerusalem, came out to see John. But it was also in the whole region of Judea. The villages, the small towns, the small cities, they all flocked to see John in the middle of nowhere in the Jordan River. But it was also all in the sense that it was people from all walks of life. The commoner would come to see John. The elite of the society, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would come to see John. And I would even guess that King Herod himself, he went out to see John. And so you might ask, how did John achieve such a great and a widespread ministry? You know, maybe he was you know, like a good-looking guy. Maybe he had uh, some nice clothing, some soft clothing that people like to see. Uh, or maybe he had a captivating personality. Maybe he was just incredibly funny. Or maybe he was like offering free food to people. You know, why were people coming to see John the Baptist? Well, as you study about John and his ministry, none of those things are mentioned. Um, he didn't seem to have a great strategy. He didn't seem to have a well-thought-out plan. And so we're led to conclude that the secret sauce to his ministry was simply that he was faithful. It was faithfulness. He was faithful to his mission to prepare the way of the Lord. And for him, that meant that he was faithful to preach God's message. Faithfulness, 
That's why God and the Spirit of God blessed his ministry. And that was his input, right? Was that he was simply faithful to do his part. And he was faithful to preach the message of the gospel. And it was a simple two-part message that we see here still in Mark chapter 1. The first part of his message was that he preached a message of repentance. Uh, Verse 4 says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He called people He called people out for their sins. He called them to turn from their wicked ways and live in obedience to God. And he symbolized, and and people symbolized their repentance through the act of water baptism. And so very simply, right, that's the first part of his message, to call people to repentance. Uh, But there was a second part, just as important, is that he preached about the coming Messiah. He preached Jesus Christ. Skipping down to verse 7 says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He preached that someone greater than him, even though he was the greatest prophet to ever live, he preached that a greater prophet, a greater man was about to come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And when he finally saw Jesus approaching him, in John 1, 29, you'll remember he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He preached a simple message, repentance in Jesus Christ. And guess what? That's the same message that we're called to spread to others, to spread in the world. Right? We are to follow his example of faithfulness, and we are to call people to repentance. We're to inform people and tell them that they are sinners, that they have rebelled against a holy God. And because of their sin, they're deserving of punishment. They're deserving of hell, an eternal hell filled with God's wrath. But we're also supposed to preach Christ, and that Christ came on this earth to die for their sins, to suffer the wrath of God, And he died for it. But three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and conquering death. You see, we need to be like John in our evangelism, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, you don't need a plan, right? It's it's good to have, it's it's helpful to have a gospel outline like the class that some of you guys, I hope, have signed up to take. That's all good. But the key for us, right, is just simple faithfulness. It's faithfulness to teach and to spread God's message. And like John, trust that God will bless it, whatever that means. Whether it's thousands upon thousands like it was for John, or whether it's one or two or three, if you are faithful to the message of repentance and the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's going to make you successful in that. All right? So that's the first point, is that we are to follow the faithfulness of John the Baptist. Um, But as we continue and we flip back to our story in Mark chapter 6, even though John was faithful and obviously the expert in evangelism, um, he didn't always have a positive response. People did not always respond warmly. People did not always jump up and down wanting to be baptized next. In fact, he experienced hostility 
and persecution, right? And all of that really is, is, is what our story tonight is about. So let's turn back to Mark chapter 6, and we'll continue in our story uh, in verse, starting in verse 16. Right, so once again, let me set it up. Herod heard that there was a movement spreading throughout Galilee. Right, these people, these men, preaching repentance, and this, and they came with God's divine power to heal and to cast out demons. And I believe that as Herod got word of this, I believe that there was a, a chill that ran down his spine. Right, and palms probably got sweaty. The blood probably rushed rushed away from his face. Because in his heart, in his mind, he believed that there was only one man who had such divine power, John the Baptist. So we read in verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So not only do we learn in these verses that Herod became, became convinced that Jesus was actually that second coming that resurrected John the Baptist, but we actually learn that it was Herod who murdered John. He was the one who had John beheaded, right? And now, of course, it seems that John's back, and he's, he's been raised from the dead. He has the power to heal and defy death himself. And so I believe that Herod became fearful. Um, but anyways, that's not really the main part of the story. Uh, but Mark uses this confusion about who Jesus was, of this confusion about John, and he uses it to basically give us a flashback about how uh, John was murdered, right? And that's, that's the main part of our story um, tonight. And so for the rest of tonight, um, it's going to be about this flashback. And so for this, I'm going to ask um, our AV team to flash up the slide for us um, because there's quite a bit of background material that we need to go through. And once again, we're going to be talking about two worldly responses to John the Baptist's ministry. And we'll see that through um, the various characters of our story. Verse 17 introduced some of them to us, Herod, Herodias, and Philip. But let me kind of walk you through this family tree because it's very confusing. If, if you're a student of the Bible, you've read through the Gospels, you've read through Acts, you'll probably notice that King Herod pops up everywhere. Um, but it's not all the same Herod. And so let me explain which one we're talking about. So at the very top, there's King uh, Herod the Great. Um, he's the patriarch, very wicked. Um, he was the man who in uh, Luke chapter, or excuse me, Matthew, uh, beginning of Matthew, um, it, when Jesus was born, the, the, the Magi visited him, and, and then he commanded that genocide would be committed against the Jews. All the boys who are younger than two would be slaughtered. That's, that's Harry the Great. He's the, the wicked man up at top, and all of his descendants, they were no better than him, basically. Uh, so Harry the Great's at top. He's not in our story, uh, but he had a lot of sons. Um, he also had like 10 wives, um, but some of his sons are, are here. Um, Herod Antipas, the third one, uh, that's our Herod. That's the Herod that we're learning about in our story. Um, he's also sometimes called uh, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, and that's because Herod the Great, his father, actually split up his kingdom um, into four sections. And so for our Herod, Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, um, he was given the region of Galilee and Perea, kind of that northern part um, of Israel. Right? So that's Herod Antipas. Um, and he also had a brother. Uh, named Philip, right? And 
He'll come into play in a bit. And so there's Herod, Herod Antipas, there's Philip, uh, and then you'll probably notice that there's also Herodias. Um, Herodias um, is the uh, great, or Herodias is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Um, and she actually marries uh, Philip. She marries her uncle. Um, that's her first marriage. And so really from the very beginning, you'll see that this is actually an incestuous relationship between Philip and Herodias. Um, but of course, things don't work out with them. Herodias, I guess, sees Herod, or maybe Herod uh, sees Herodias, and they become interested in each other. And eventually, Herodias and Philip, they split. They have a divorce. Uh, Herodias decides to leave, and instead she goes to her second marriage, which is King Herod Antipas. And so, you know, just as disgusting, still incestuous, but now you add on that there's an un unlawful divorce, which means now, now there's also this adulterous relationship between Herod Antipas and Herodias, all right? So these are the characters at play, and I hope that kind of gives you some background into who these people are. Once again, everyone on this chart, they're, they're very wicked. Um, there's also Herod Agrippa, and you'll read about him in the book of Acts, but um, that's the third Herod that you see. But for us, once again, we're talking about Herod Antipas or Herod uh, the Tetrarch. Um, not pictured here is Herodias's daughter. Um, it's likely that Herodias's daughter um, came from the marriage between Philip and uh, Herodias because she's never really referred to as King Herod's daughter. So just keep that in mind that when we talk about Herodias's daughter, um, it's actually his uh, stepdaughter, or excuse me, it's King Herod's stepdaughter. All right, so with that background material, let's go back to our passage. Um, now, in verse 17, once again, let me read that for us. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so when Philip and Herod, they got divorced and King Herod instead married Herodias, right? This is a very public act because, you know, Herod and Herodias, they're very public figures in Israel. And so John, being the faithful preacher that he was, he preached the same message to King Herod as he would to anyone else. And he called Herod to repentance. He said, this, this marriage, this divorce that you have caused, it's unlawful. It's sinful. It's against God's design for marriage, and you need to turn from your wicked ways. And of course, as you can imagine, John most likely did this publicly in front of a great crowd, in front of Herod and Herodias themselves, perhaps. And Herodias, she's not happy about it. And this is where we find our first response, this first worldly response that we need to anticipate is that we need to anticipate an unrelenting hostility to the gospel. An unrelenting hostility to the gospel. And we see this primarily through the, the person of Herodias. So once again, Herodias becomes enraged by this call to repentance. And in verse 19, we read her response. It says, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And we, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, 
and yet he heard him gladly. Herodias, she was likely embarrassed that John would call out her sin, her sexual immorality, her adultery, and her divorce, and so she wanted to kill him. Right? She didn't hide it from anyone. She wanted to kill John because he was calling out her sin. Right? And I believe that Mark, through this character of Herodias, is showing that there is going to be real hostility against the gospel. And we're going to develop this as the story continues, but that's what her character represents, this unrelenting hostility, this hatred, this scorn against those who would call people out for their sin and call them to repentance. And we're also, in these verses, we're actually introduced to the second response. And I'm going to kind of sprinkle these responses throughout the rest of the message. Um, But we're also to anticipate a second worldly response. And that's an an insincere intrigue in the gospel. An insincere intrigue in the gospel. And we see this through the character of King Herod. And so on one side, Herodias is completely enraged, completely hostile to John the Baptist. She wants to kill him. But Herod, on the other hand, his character is actually kind of interesting. Because you see that even though his wife wanted to kill John the Baptist, King Herod didn't see it the same way. In fact, he stopped her. Even though she was powerful in her own right, Herod stopped her. Said at the end of verse 19, but she could not, and we find out why. For Herod feared John. Herod actually had a respect for John the Baptist. Even though John was calling Herod out for his adultery, for his sin, Herod actually knew that John the Baptist was from God. It said that he knew that he was a righteous and a holy man. Interesting. And so he kept him safe. And and also, you know, Herod would actually go see John and, and hear John preach to him. And of course, it sounded like he didn't understand everything at the end of verse 20. It said he was greatly perplexed. And yet at the same time, he heard him gladly. You see, I think Herod actually, he, he recognized and he knew that John's words were true and that John was a man sent from God. And so he was glad to listen to him. Perhaps he was entertained um, by him. And so we'll develop once again his character more as the story continues. Um, But Herod represents the the people who are glad, actually at first glad to hear the gospel. Um, They may be glad to come to church or go to the Bible study, uh, go to a Bible study. Perhaps they're happy to have an individual Bible study with you. And it seems like they're interested in the things of God. But as we'll see as time goes on, we find out that their interest is simply just interest. And just like Herod, they do not desire to repent and they never truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so once again, we'll, we'll learn more about the response as the story goes on, but just wanted to set it up now. And so now we transition to uh, the next part of this flashback and we uh, fast forward about a year. Okay, so when John gets arrested and he gets put in prison by Herod, um, that's about the same time when Jesus' ministry was beginning. Um, There's a reference to it um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, around the time of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. That's when John was put in, in prison. And so now we're about a year later, almost to the events of Mark chapter 6, almost to the time when Jesus goes out and sends out his disciples 
And so John's been in prison for about a year now. And so we read what happens in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Herod had a lavish birthday party, right? That's what kings like to do back then is to, uh, you know, basically brag about, their, uh, brag about their power, brag about their wealth. And so he invited the most powerful men of Galilee, right? All of his nobles, all the people in his court, all the, the leading men of Galilee, and all the military commanders. Basically, every person he wanted to impress. And of course, you know, with every party, uh, you need some entertainment, right? You need something to enjoy together. Um, and so we read about that in verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Um, so remember, this is an, an all-male party. This is an all-men party. And so Herod has a very odd choice of entertainment. He sends his uh, daughters, uh, he, send his, he sends his wife's daughter to come and to dance in front of all of these men. Some commentators have suggested that this was an overt sexual dance, something like the modern-day striptease. Um, some people are not as strong, but at the very least, we can say that this dance that she gave was completely inappropriate to do. The word that is used to describe Herodias' daughter is girl. That's most likely 12 years old, maybe a little bit younger than that, right? She was a girl trying to please, trying to entertain this all-male party. And it gives you a sense of the man that Herod was because he was pleased by it. In fact, not just Herod was pleased by it, but all of the guests were exceedingly pleased by her dance. And then Herod did something that was very foolish. Uh, maybe he was a little intoxicated, but he made a foolish decision. In verse 22, it says, when, Her when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. He gives her a blank check. He says, you dance so well, you please all of the men in this room and my birthday party. I want to give you whatever you want, right, up to half of my kingdom. And he says it twice, right? But, and he, he, he ups the ante the second time. It says that he vowed to her, right? He commits and uh, he, he, uh, he, uh, he makes an oath, this unbreakable oath. And remember, this is during the party. Right? He says this publicly in front of all of the nobles, all of the military commanders, all of the leading men of Galilee. And so Herodias' daughter, I think she's actually, I wouldn't say smart, but she's quick. Right? She thinks, you know, I, I need some time to think about this. What do I want? My stepdaddy is going to give me whatever I want. And so she goes to her mother. Verse 24 says, and she went out. And said to her mother, right, that's Herodias, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. I want you to notice, right, how quick and how cold Herodias' answer was. Uh, she didn't need any time to think about this. It just says very plainly, and she said, I want the head of John 
the basket. I believe that it was right there on her tongue, and she's been waiting for this opportunity for a year. I believe that she remembered when John preached um, and, and called her to repentance and called her, called her out for her sin. And I believe that hatred, that burning hatred for John the Baptist was something that she had in her heart every single day that whole year. And she was searching for that opportunity when she could finally kill and get her revenge against John the Baptist. And her opportunity came that night when her daughter said, Daddy loved my dance, what should I ask for? And she said coldly, immediately, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so her daughter took that and she did exactly as Herodias asked for. Verse 25 said, And she, that's the daughter, the girl, came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now some think that the daughter, this girl, is just a pawn in Herodias's game. And while I, I can see why they say that, because she's just a girl, um, I actually disagree. Because when you look at what Herodias' daughter, what the girl asked for, she actually asked for a little bit more than what her mom said. Uh, notice first the words immediately. When she came back, she came in immediately and with haste. Right? She came sprinting back to the party, sprinting into the room, and she asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. She said, I want his head right here, right now, in the middle of your party, in front of all the nobles, in front of all the military commanders. I want them to see the head of John the Baptist. And not only that, right, she adds on, how she wants this head to be presented to her. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Recently, a lot of different streaming networks, they have a lot of these food documentaries. And I'm sure many of you guys have watched them before where they follow chefs. Maybe you see them go to the market and they get their ingredients and you see them bring those ingredients back to their kitchen and they cook it, they prepare it. And at the very end, right, you see what the chefs do. They take all those prepared ingredients and they plate it, right? And the trend right now is to do this close-up, this wide-angle view of, of all of their food and as they're plating it with all of their different colors in this artistic arrangement. And the reason why they do that is because, you know, for all their guests, all their customers, they want them to enjoy this food um, before they actually eat it. And for you, like, as you're watching it, really, that's the best you can do. You can only enjoy it with your eyes. Uh, well, for me, right, I don't need, like, all the colors. I don't need all the little foods sprinkled on, on, a, on a plate for me to enjoy. Um, all I need is, like, a piece of, like, smoked brisket or a, a piece of prime rib with the rosy red center with the rendered fat dripping out. That's all I need to enjoy with my eyes. As you look at this passage, that's exactly what this girl wanted. She wanted the freshly carved, the freshly sliced head of John the Baptist put on a platter for her to enjoy with her eyes. She wanted to see the look of fear on his face before the axe went down, and she wanted to enjoy it. 
And not only that, she wanted her mother to enjoy it. She wanted all those men to enjoy it as well. And you see that this is the sick and sadistic, unrelenting hostility to the gospel. It's real. And once again, this is the response for us that we need to anticipate that there is an unrelenting hostility to the gospel message. And if you go out into our world outside of this country, you go to places like the Middle East or the the Far East or many other places, you'll see that this hostility is true. Where people love to persecute Christians, where people love to put Christians into jail to execute them, and they enjoy it. And while in America we're protected to some extent, we still have hostility here today. Where many people, when they see Christians and they see them calling people to repentance, they want to take everything from them. They want to take their livelihood from them. For some, they want to take away their children from them. There's a real hostility. And for some of you, you've experienced, and you may be experiencing this hostility now. Perhaps it's in your workplace. Perhaps it's in your own homes and your family. Perhaps you see it in the government. Or you may be faithful living as a Christian. And people hate you for it. In love, you share the gospel to them. In love, you share about the, the love of Christ and his death and his sacrifice for them. And they hate you for it. And once again, I think Mark shares with us this story not to discourage us, not to make us fearful of the persecution and the hatred for Christians that's out there, but he wants us to be real. He wants, I mean, he wants to be real with us. He wants to tell us that this hostility is out there and this is a response that we need to anticipate and be ready for so that we can remain faithful. So that when you share the gospel and people laugh at your face and tell you how stupid you are, that you'll remain faithful. That you know that this could be coming. And if people, when you share the gospel with people and people don't want to hear it, what do we do? Well, Mark, in Mark 6, 11, Jesus actually told his disciples what to do. He said to shake the dust off your sandal and to move on. Right? If people hate you for the gospel message, right? our job is, is just to be faithful and to share that message and allow God, allow God to work in their hearts. If they don't want to hear it, if they respond in hostility, as hard as it is for us to do, We just walk away, and we continue to search for more fertile ground. Some of you may ask, well, what if this hostility is coming from people who are close to you, your own family? And I know for many of you, this is the case, where you're living with your your family, and they despise you because of your Christianity. Well, for you, I would say, I would say, God bless you, right? This, this is hard. This is a real trial that you are going through. And I would, continue to, I would encourage you to continue to live righteously, to love them, to care for them. And when that opportunity comes to share faithfully with them the love of Christ and trust that the Spirit can work in their heart, right? It's the same Spirit who 
drove those people out into the wilderness to hear John and to be baptized, to repent of their sins. It's that same spirit, the same power, the same message that you are sharing with them, the same message that John the Baptist shared with all of Israel. Right? If the spirit can change their hearts, he can do the same with your family members. And so I'd encourage you, I know it's difficult, but to continue to live faithfully and trust the spirit for the results. Right? So that's response one that we need to anticipate is that unrelenting hostility to the gospel. But there's a second one, the second response that we've been talking about, that insincere interest in the gospel. And we see this in Herod's response. Verse 26 says, And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. We see here at the beginning of verse 26 that there's some tension in Herod's heart. It says that when he heard this, these words, the request for the head of John the Baptist, that he was exceedingly sorry. Right? And if we just stop there, you know, there's a part of me that wants to believe that, you know, that Herod had regret, that he had sorrow over his foolishness, and that he would actually change. That he would see that his ways were foolish, his, his offer of whatever you want was foolish, and for a moment it seems like maybe Herod would actually repent and acknowledge that John was a true prophet of God and that he needs to change from his wicked ways. But we know what happened. We all know that Herod crumbled, right? He feared John. Yes, he knew that John preached the truth, and yes, he knew that John was sent from God, but despite Herod's fear of John, he feared his daughter more, he feared his wife more, and he feared all of his guests more than John, and he feared, the more, feared all those people more than God himself. And so what he did, what did he do? He did everything the girl asked for. He immediately sent the command to the executioner who went into the prison, beheaded John, and at once brought John's head on a platter for everyone to enjoy. You see, once again, Herod's response was different than Herodias' response and the girl's response. It wasn't this outright hostility. It wasn't this scorn and this hatred from John that we saw from Herodias. It was, he was certainly interested in the gospel, but was his response any better? It wasn't. It wasn't any better than this outright and this unrelenting hostility because it ended up in the murder of John the Baptist. You see, when we reach out to people and we minister to people, People may be courteous and people may be interested. They might be willing to come to church with you. They might be willing to do a Bible study with you. They might be willing to do that for months and for years. And Lord willing, many of those people become saved. 
but there's also those who will do all of those things. And they have a sincere, and it seems like they have a sincere interest in the gospel. But, but then something happens in their life. Maybe it's some sort of trial, a personal trial. Maybe it's, you know, they have to work a lot. Or maybe there's some family pressure telling them not to come to church. Maybe it's a health issue. Or maybe they just say that it's not their own time, they don't have enough time. Or maybe it's their own sin, whatever it is. Eventually, even though they had some interest, they drift away. And that's hard, especially if you're the one ministering to them, you're the one caring for them, you're the one studying the Bible with them and faithfully praying that they would come to repentance. But once again, Mark is being real with us here, that that's how some people will respond, where you'll give your life to them, and at the end of the day, they will still reject, even though you spent years ministering to them. And it hurts. Once again, our job is to be faithful, that even when that happens, to stay faithful and to continue to look for those, for those who will hear the gospel, and we are faithful to leave those results up to God. That's our job. And so as we look at these two responses, I, I also want to do a bit of a, a, an aside and to really think about our own response to the gospel. You know, I, I can say pretty safely that for the first response, this hostility, I, I would say that most likely there's no one in this room who has this hostility towards the gospel because you wouldn't be spending your Friday nights here listening to me, right, if that were the case. Uh, but it's the second response this insincere interest in the gospel. Um, this is what I fear for some of you in this group. And I don't know who you are, but this is my fear, is that you're happy to come to Friday nights to hear the word, to pray with these Christians here, to have food with us. You're happy to go on, on Sundays once again to sing and to hear a message, and you're sincerely, and, and you're, uh, you're interested in hearing about who God is, about who Christ is, what the Bible says about who you are. And yet, that's where it ends, right? It's just interest. It's an academic learning. But if you look into your heart and ask yourself, have you truly repented of your sins? And have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? That hasn't happened yet. And that's what I fear for some in this room because just like Herod, there's going to come a time in your life where it's going to be a, a decision point, right? A time of, of reckoning where once again, there's going to be some trial or something that will pull you away from this Christianity. And just like Herod, you'll crumble. You'll drift away. And so don't delay in coming to faith. Right? Tonight, you can do that tonight to repent of your sins, right? to see that you are destined to hell because of your rebellion against God. But also, that faith in Christ, that he died for you, that he gave up his life for you, you can do that now. You can do that tonight. So now, wrapping things up, I want to ask the question of how can we stay faithful like John? Right, that's, that's the main message tonight is that we need to follow his example of faithfulness. But how can we do that? How can we stay faithful when people scorn us, 
when people laugh at us, even in the extreme when people want to kill us because of our faith. How can we do that when we, are, we faithfully minister to people and it seems like there's no fruit? How can we stay faithful like John? Well, once again, we look to the example of John the Baptist, of how he was able to stay faithful. And I believe that he was able to stay faithful because he himself was fully convicted of the message that he preached. He understood that he himself was a great sinner who needed to repent of his sins. He knew that he was wicked in his own heart. And he also knew that he needed Christ to save him from his sins. And so I ask you that same question of how can you stay faithful like John? Is to do the same. Is to look, look deep within your own heart and you see that you are depraved, that you're sinful, that you need a savior, right? And you see that you're a great sinner, but you also see that Jesus Christ is a great savior. And so that when you see Christ, you can call out like John and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That should be your cry when you see Jesus Christ. And if you're able to do that, and remember throughout your life that you are a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior, then you can be like John and stay faithful to the very end despite hostility, despite persecution, despite when there's seemingly no fruit in your Christian witness. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the example of John the Baptist that he is a model of ministry, that even though he was had a, a ministry that far extended uh, beyond what any of us are able to accomplish today, he was faithful. And he was faithful to the very end. We pray, I pray, Lord, that as we experience that same hostility in our life today, that we can stay faithful like John and remember that we need that, that we are great sinners and that we need the great Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for those who have not made that confession yet in their own heart, that they would do that tonight and that your spirit would convict them and show them their need for a Savior. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So we're going to have some uh, time of discussion groups. And I have a few questions um, for you to spur some conversation. All right, so yeah, number one is to, um, to describe a time that you felt hostility against you because of your Christian belief. Uh, number two, describe a time when you were witnessing to an unbeliever who eventually stopped showing interest in the gospel. Uh, for number one or number two, how did that discourage you? I want you to be real and, uh, in that. And then what helps you to stay faithful? All right, so those are a couple discussion group uh, questions for us tonight. And of course, feel free to uh, talk about anything else that was mentioned in, in the message. But thank you.